see everyone in the Zendo and it's nice to see you out there in Radio Land. Um, so lately I've been reading uh, a really excellent recent book uh, about the history of Zen uh, written by, it's called The Circle of the Way by Barbara O'Brien. And it's really refreshing to be reminded of uh, the arc of Zen history, starting in India, but really focusing a lot on, on China and Japan. And particularly for me, and I know many of us love this, the, uh, the rich, uh, lines of Zen in the Tang Dynasty, uh, what's sometimes called the Golden Age of Zen. And uh, to read these stories again, once I was inspired by uh, really deeply in kind of my early years of practice and continuing to inspire me. So this week, as I was reading through uh, Barbara O'Brien's book, uh, I came across uh, a short section uh, on uh, Matsu Daoyi, uh, who was uh, founder of one of the primary lineages of Tang Dynasty Zen, the Hangzhou School, uh, which then uh, in within a couple of generations. Uh, his lineage includes uh, Baijiang and also Linji or Rinzai. Uh, and so that's one of the, one of the great threads of uh, living Zen tradition. So when I get around to it, I wanna talk about two famous koans uh, that were uh, part of the record of Matsu. And these koans sort of stretch like, a, like the sky over our whole tradition. But just first a little background. Uh, so unusually, uh, Matsu's uh, Dharma name was taken from his family name, Ma, and he was born in Sichuan province in 1709. And according to uh, the transmission of the lamp, uh, Matsu Tsu means master, basically. So Master Ma was a student of uh, Nanyue Wairang, who was one of the principal disciples of the sixth ancestor. Uh, He's in our lineage. Well, he's not in our lineage. In our lineage from the sixth ancestor, uh, one of his other disciples is the kind of the source of what we call the Soto tradition or the Kaodong tradition, which would be uh, Qingyuan, Qingyuan Qinqi. But Qingyuan and Nanyue were in the same direct, in the same, uh, They were both students of, uh, well, they were both reportedly students of Minang, the sixth ancestor. Whether Nanyue actually met him is not exactly clear. 
but you may know this famous story of uh, Master Ma's first encounter with Nanyue. Uh, I think it's been told many times here. So Reverend Ma was sitting Zazen in the courtyard and uh, Reverend Wairong uh, saw him and sat down on a rock facing him and started polishing a tile. And Master Ma asked, what are you doing? And Wairong said, I'm polishing the tile to make a mirror. Master Ma said, how can you make a mirror by rubbing a tile? And Wairong said, if I can't make a mirror by rubbing a tile, how can you make a Buddha by sitting in meditation? So usually that's where we end the story. Uh, actually, there's more. Uh, Ma, Master Ma asks Wairong, what should I be doing? And Wairong in, in this uh, really typical Zen mode of uh, answering a question with another question, uh, says to Matsu, well, when the, when the ox cart stops, do you beat the cart or do you beat the ox? Matsu looks at him not knowing what to say. And Wairang adds, are you sitting in meditation or are you sitting in meditation in order to be a Buddha? If you do that, you will kill the Buddha. And with that, uh, the young monk Ma had a, a glimpse of uh, liberation. And he, he said uh, it felt like just as if he had tasted ghee, which ghee is clarified butter. And I guess it tastes good. <laughs> um, Anyway, uh, I think that was meant to be uh, a statement of appreciation. So the transmission of the lamp describes uh, Matsu like this. It says, his appearance was remarkable. He strode along like a bull and glared about him like a tiger. Someone's coming in, so I'm just going to wait a moment. His appearance was remarkable. He strode around along like a bull and glared about him like a tiger. If he stretched out his tongue, it reached up over his nose. That's, that's a long tongue. Uh, and on the soles of his feet, uh, the veins on the soles of his, his feet uh, took the shape of two circular marks. So Master Ma began the, the tradition that we have. Uh, he was known for his stranger words and extraordinary actions. And so with him, we have the beginning of uh, a kind of wild and seemingly transgressive mode of teaching with shouts and blows and words and expressions that really jolt us out of our ordinary perception. This is another story, famous story that let me share with you. Uh, once uh, Master Ma was walking with his disciple, Bhajan, 
and they saw a flock of wild geese flying over. Matsu said, what's that? And Baijiang said, wild geese. Matsu said, where have they gone? And Baijiang said, they've flown away. At this point, Matsu grabbed his disciple's nose and twisted it with all of his force. Uh, this made Baijiang scream with pain. And Matsu merely remarked, so you thought they had flown away, eh? Uh, where have they ever gone? So that was his mode of teaching, one of his modes of teaching. Uh, the other koan that we have of Master Ma that we all know is on his deathbed. Uh, he, when he asked how he was, when asked by a student how he was, he gave the famous response, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. So, um, as I said, his lineage continues through Baijong and Wangbo, and then Linji uh, becomes what we have as, Lin, as the Linji or Rinzai school. So, here are the two koans, uh, and they are koans, case 30 and 33 in the Mumankan or the Wumankan. And the first case is this. Uh, this very mind is Buddha. The student Damei asked Matsu, what is Buddha? Matsu said, this very mind is Buddha. That's the whole case. Muman's uh, comment is, if you can grasp the point directly, you wear Buddha's robes, eat Buddha's food, speak Buddha's words, take Buddha's role. That is, you yourself are Buddha. Dame, however, misled quite a few people into trusting a broken scale. Don't you know you should rinse out your mouth for three days when you utter the name Buddha? If you are genuine, you'll run away holding your ears upon just hearing the words, this very mind is Buddha. So uh, be careful how you conceptualize. We should be careful about how we think of these expressions. Uh, Muman's verse is, is really beautiful. The blue sky and bright day. And as I say this, look what's happening. The sun is coming out. The blue sky and the bright day. No more searching around. What is Buddha, you ask? Hiding the loot, you declare your innocence. So that's that's the first case. The second case, just a few passages later, so a few koans later in the Mumankan is uh, case 33. A monk asked Matsu, what is Buddha? Matsu said, not mind, not Buddha. Okay. From there, you actually have all the ingredients to cook, to cook up the entire history of Zen from those two, from those two koans. And Muman's comment is, if you can see through this clearly, your Zen training is complete. Muman's verse, again, really eloquent, says, if you meet a swordsman, present a sword. Don't offer a poem, 
unless you meet a poet. When speaking, say one third of it. Don't give the whole thing at once. So there's a, a follow-up story, there's a couple follow-ups in these cases. Uh, so long after Tamei asked his question of Matsu, uh, he moved out and became a very well-known teacher. And he had many disciples. And his reputation and fame reached the ears of Matsu. Uh, and Matsu sent a monk, one of his students, to investigate the authority of Dame's uh, understanding. And this monk had been given the koan, not mind and not Buddha. And he was given that to test Dame. That, yeah. So when, when this young monk arrived at Dame's hermitage, Dame asked him, uh, where did you come from, Reverend Monk? And the monk said, I came from the great Master Ma. And Dame says, what kind of Buddhism is he teaching these days? The monk said, of late, uh, Master Ma's Buddhism has really completely changed. Well, how did it change? Formerly, the great Master Ma always said, this very mind is Buddha itself. But now he says, it is neither the mind nor Buddha. Dame bit his lip and said, this old scoundrel is just trying to confuse people. He may teach neither mind nor Buddha. I still say mind is Buddha. And uh, the young monk returned to Matsu reported his exchange. And Matsu left and said, oh, the plum is ripe. Uh, da uh, is plum, the, the da of dame, which is like the ba uh, plum. So later, there's another story in the record of Matsu. Uh, another monk asked Matsu, why do you teach that mind is no other than Buddha? And Matsu said, in order to make a child stop its crying. And when the crying is stopped, what would you say? Neither mind nor Buddha. What teaching would you give to one who is not in those two groups? Matsu said, I will say, it's not a thing. If you unexpectedly meet a person who is right in the middle of it, what would you do finally, asked the monk. Matsu said, I will let him realize the great way. So I think like Sojin Roshi, Matsu was constantly encouraging his students to see the other side of the page. not to be caught on either koan as a definitive statement, rather to see in each case, he was responding directly to the person and to the circumstances in front of him. And as I said, I think our whole tradition unfolds from this these two seemingly contradictory propositions about the nature of the self, uh, they're, these are central to our, the ancient dialogue within the Zen tradition. And I think the question in front of us is, how are they pivotal for our lives?
what do, what do we make of them? How do we use them? And more to the point, actually, always the question is, how shall I live? What will I do? Day by day, we're encouraged here to meet our true minds. And we do this by deepening and extending our capacity to recognize uncertainty, to recognize ambiguity, uh, rather than to land on some absolute principle, absolute principle of mind is Buddha, absolute principle of no mind, no Buddha, but to be able to allow them to arise in a way that expresses the messiness of life. So what is this mind that they're talking about here? Uh, Joshu's famous expression, ordinary mind is the way, actually is a direct borrowing from Matsu who said this many times. Uh, I think that Suzuki Roshi's beginner's mind as well as big mind are also expressions of what Matsu was pointing to in both of these gods. We take these Zen expressions for granted nowadays. We, we hear them as just part of the, the regular language of Zen that we're familiar with, but they were really radical in their time. Uh, and really they still are. And at the same time, they're ordinary. in the sense that our lives are ordinary, that the example of our late teacher was profoundly ordinary. And, and for me, ordinary is a precious way to be. To be. Um, I can't remember because I can't remember if this robe that I'm wearing is one of Sojin's or one of mine. We both had robes made of the similar material, and we both had robes that had been patched many times. And uh, I think this is our, you know, this is our model. There's someone once said they're, they're brocade robe monks and they're patch robe monks. And I think that our family is natural monks, very clean, very ordinary, and the rope does the job. It, it covers the being, which is all it needs to do. And as shiny as it might be, it wouldn't do any better job covering us. So, uh, that's a sense of what ordinary is. So whether you see, whether you are enlightened or not, is really not the point of what Matsu is getting at. It doesn't denigrate it, but, you know, he says, are you, you know, are you just sitting zazen or are you sitting zazen to become a Buddha? Uh, and in our tradition, we have this model of Dogen's uh, 
expression of practice realization that enlightenment is there. It's indwelling. Original mind is indwelling. Uh, and in fact, we can do nothing. There's nothing we can think. There's nothing we can do that doesn't operate from that source. Uh, at the same time, we may or may not realize it. So Matu says, if you want directly to know the way, then know that ordinary mind is the way. What is ordinary mind? It means no intentional creation and action, no right or wrong, no grasping or rejecting, no ending or permanent, no profane or sacred. This is really, this is hard to get our minds around. <laughs> and I think many people have been mistaken to take this as a, a position that uh, is quite apart from morality. But I think that the message that we're getting from Matsu and all these ancestors is that uh, if we are practicing ordinary way, then we are in line with the moral nature of the universe. that when it says no intentional creation and action, uh, Lori and I were talking about this. Uh, I think what he's, what they're getting at is, can you find a way to live or even a moment to live where you're not concocting something? where you're not fabricating something, you know, or where you don't. So it's not like you have no thoughts. It's like when a thought arises, and this is the mind of Zazen, when the thought arises, can you just let that thought be there and not concoct, not make an entire story out of it, and then uh, align your life with that story? So ordinary to me means uh, means unadorned. It means plain. Uh, it also means what uh, what our friend Santi Caro uh, spoke of when he spoke of the of the of Shila of the precepts. Ordinary would would he said is that the meaning of, of that is of a natural normalness. So you just let this natural normalness arise. Can you do that without with and take your ego out of the way and just operate in so ordinary, the other sense of it to me is that um, it implies the proper order of our lives. <clears throat> means that things have a place, things have a way of unfolding can we allow that to happen without interfering with it? In fact, can we stand back for a moment and observe it and see what can I learn from the ordinary way that things are unfolding? What can I learn from the way in Dogen's expression, enlightenment is unfolding. Enlightenment unfolds 
in this ordinary way. I think one of the experiences that that we often had with Sojin, and I found it with other uh, other teachers that I admire, uh, is a kind of relaxation, a kind of ease of meeting the world and curiosity. So this ordinary mind is, is, is curious. Oh, what's happening now? What's happening here? Instead of imposing my system of thought or my habits, can I just watch what's going on with curiosity? You know, just in between the last two sentences, I heard geese honking outside. I said, where have they gone? <laughs> so, um, It's not that we should be disdainful of the activity of our activities, our activities of mind, our activities of body. I'm going to read something from, from Dogen. Uh, when Matsu said, mind is Buddha, Dogen would say something, he would, Dogen could elaborate on that a bit. Dogen says, in our house, body and mind together attain the way. As long as you try to figure out Buddha Dharma just with your mind, you can never attain it, even for myriad eons or thousands of lifetimes. There you go. It is attained by letting go of the mind abandoning views and interpretations, to see form and clarify the mind, to hear sound and come to realization is attainment of the way with the body. The body is not apart from the mind. The functioning of your senses, the functioning of your limbs, the functioning of your heart, your hara are all body-mind. To be in a line with them is the ordinary. In uh, Shobo Genso Zazen Shin, I'm compressing this a bit, Dogen writes, the essential function of every Buddha and the functioning essence of every ancestor is knowing without touching things, illuminating without facing objects. without facing objects is without making an object of your thoughts, without making an object of your feelings and thereby being caught by them. And at the end of this section, he says, the water is clear to the bottom. A fish is swimming slowly, slowly. The sky is infinitely vast. A bird is flying far, far away. So where are those geese right now? 
the fish swims in the water, the, the water, it doesn't necessarily see the water. Water is just the medium in which it's operating. The bird flies in the sky, and the sky is just the medium in which it is operating. I think the question for us is, what is the water, what is the sky for, for ourselves, for the existence of our being? What is the medium in which we operate? In a sense, I think that's what Matsu is asking. What is, you know, he's, he's raising the question for us. What is mind? And then he's also warning us, don't be caught on it. I just want to go back. Just, I love this. Uh, this dialogue. You know, why would you teach? Student asks him, monk asks him, why do you teach that mind is no other than Buddha? In order to make a child stop its crying. So, you know, for a child to understand that whatever it needs is within it, it's within its capacity. And for uh, if the crying, when the crying stops, monk says, what would you say? Neither mind nor Buddha. When the crying stops, you have to be careful not to fixate on the Buddha as an object. So, you know, it's so easy for us to fall into one side or the other. And I think with these two koans, Master Ma is really encouraging us to, to see it from both sides. This is our capacity that we, that we grow here in this practice, just to be able to include everything And to recognize that our usual logic doesn't do apply to it all. The water is clear to the bottom. A fish is swimming slowly, slowly. The sky is infinitely vast. A bird is flying far, far away. So I think I'm going to stop there and uh, leave ample time for us to, to talk, to hear what your, what this calls forth for you, to hear what is mind for you. Mary. I don't know if this is one question or two, but um, how does this teaching fit in with the understanding that the universe is one's mind and the mind is the universe? And what is, maybe this is the same question, what is the definition of mind? Well, the definition of mind is for you to figure out. Remember, he said uh, only, uh, only give one third of it. Um, <laughs> you know, so uh, there are a variety of definitions of mind uh, and the thing about the, the, the fluidity of our mind, which is remarkable, is that it can be very precise, you know, really focused on a, the tiniest point, or it can be vast and it switches. It's the, the nature of it is, to me, is this kind of amazing flexibility. And the challenge is, can we bring that flexibility to our moment-to-moment -moment activity? You know, it's one thing to be flexible, to be sitting here in this spacious, in this spacious environment, 
and uh, in that moment, in, a, in, a, in an instant, one hears the geese. Uh, and in the next moment, you return to, I'm returning to this text that I have in front of me. That's, there's a kind of remarkable fluidity, but that's only part of it. I, I was re recently reading something that posed the question, does consciousness continue without the body or mind or brain? And does it exist without manifestation of the physical? And it made me think of an eclectic group of scientists at UCLA who've been meeting to discuss mind and the definition I came up with is the flow of information and energy, which doesn't connect it necessarily to this brain. That's that's true, and you know I don't I don't I haven't read that, and I don't know what their discourse is. But even information seems to me an objectification. Uh, you know, in order for something to be information. It has to be in some kind of categories, but anyway, uh, I think in Buddhism, when Suzuki Roshi is talking about big mind, and I think, uh, I think when Matsu is speaking of mind, he's thinking of something beyond our understanding, you know, beyond bound. He's thinking of something that's boundless. Yeah, to the. I was wondering what your take is on how this connects to, uh, you know, I imagine it is a Venn diagram. There's a circle and we call it possibility. And then there's another circle, uh, impossibility, like our seemingly impossible vow to save all beings. And then the possibility of meeting, deeply meeting in this moment. So rather than calling it an intersection of those two, sort of seeing them as circles, how, how would that connect to these teachings that you're bringing forth today? Because I feel like that's where the rubber hits the road what's possible in this moment as a benefit and how does that connect to the impossibility say of that i would rather characterize vow as boundless rather than impossible if you say if you say it's impossible you know, that's, you're, I mean, to say it's impossible is already imposing your thinking on it. And I think that the that thrust of these koans is to push you beyond that. And to, to, to communicate that we have naturally within us the capacity to go beyond, sometimes go beyond what we think is possible. I was thinking of it more in terms of, you know, the song, The Impossible Dream. Because I think part of this is, you know, it's great to say boundlessness, but sometimes to me, just an ordinary conversation, a lot of this stuff can sound really abstract. And, and the, the feeling tone of singing or hearing to dream the impossible dream kind of gets me in a different space where I can feel both of those things alive. It's possible and impossible in a way that somehow that word boundless well, the word doesn't do it. You're right. So those are, those are very highly conceptual words. And this is why uh, some of the, these old teachings were really constantly trying to push us beyond our conceptualization. And of course, you know, in this case, we're only dealing with words. 
in other cases, you know, Bai Zhang had his nose twisted, which, you know, that was a physical, it's a physical act, but we can't, we only have the words that describe that. Uh, but, uh, I think all of our teachers are encouraging us to understand, to feel directly there's more and that we are connected to it. And it's hard. It's hard because sometimes, I mean, I felt this last night, you know, there's a certain struggle that I have with this material as well. You know, it's, it's, I can understand it intellectually, um, but at the moment that I'm trying to understand it intellectually, I may I really, I may be unlikely to be feeling it, feeling the truth of it. And I'm sure that there are people in this room at the moment who are doubting their capacity. They're not doubting the meaning of the words. They may be, you may be doubting as I do, my capacity to actually embody this or experience it directly. And our teachers just keep saying, you can do this. And in fact, you are doing it, uh, whether you notice it or not. You're relying on the mind. You're relying on the whole universe, the coming together, the, those countless causes and conditions that are creating this moment, this thought, this movement of my hand, etc. Seems impossible. I just want to see if there's anyone online. Not seeing any hands there, but I would encourage you if you're online, please feel free to, to ask while you're contemplating that. Oh, Hiko. Uh, thank you, Hosan. Um, while you were talking, I was uh, casting back to uh, my earliest thing with uh, a Chan Buddhist monk who was a Shaolin Kung Fu teacher. And he did not teach application. That is to say, he didn't teach, and he refused to teach the application of the move, like this is to hurt somebody or pull them or push them, but to train the body. Mm -hmm. And he also, in spite of, uh, and finally he gave in to us, uh, we wanted to do the Heart Sutra. He refused and refused, and finally he allowed us to chant that in, in uh, Pali, which nobody could understand. And there was a little translation, but he didn't discuss it. And as I'm sitting here thinking about conceptualizing in a, in a, in a, an interaction with the world and devising a response or a way of dealing with it, I'm thinking that this is uh, our conceptualization. This is our trap. And so I, I thought of that teacher again. I was like, well, why wouldn't he do that? He, we lived in New York City. He wanted us to be completely ready in flexibility, in power, in confidence, so that we could see and be present for without fear. And in that, uh, his refusal to teach us anything but our body work, that's what was coming up as you were talking, the body work brought us into a stage of readiness without we weren't trying to become Buddhas, and yet we were all talking about Buddhism and Chan and, and these sorts of things in our discussions, yet his teaching was to be in the move, do it hard, do it again, and, and again. That was all he really taught us. And I wonder if, if that strikes you the way it does me, as preparing the body, and as our form practice often does for us here, preparing our physical being to be in the space where we can give one answer or the other and respond appropriately. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, <clears throat> this is what um, 
Dogen goes into exhaustively in body and mind study of the way. Uh, and we, our first methodology here is we sit with our bodies. You know, this is a physical practice. And, you know, the forms are physical and the, it's like we practice that and then bit by bit, we can integrate the, we can integrate in a conscious way, the, the mental aspects, but the mental aspects are there all along because they're not, they're inseparable from the body. So if you're working on the body, you're working on the mind. We, whereas not necessarily vice versa. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Retribution. Thanks very much for a really helpful talk. I really appreciate it. So I wanted to touch a little different angle in on something that you said, which was about uh, for the definition or an understanding of ordinary is to talk about the order. What came to my mind was the sense of ease that you described in teachers that you respect. And I think what's being pointed to here in birds flying in their element and fish swimming in their elements. And that is, uh, order is about everything being in its proper place. Mm -hmm. Sojourn would say that, you know, when you've kind of when you've settled in the way, you're neither too much too little, you're not too high nor too low, but you're in the proper place. And I, I do think that that's what's, what's being pointed to here. And as you were talking, I had this connection of lineage that Lin Ji is the one who said, a true man of no rank. A true man is in the proper place. He has no rank. He's just where he should be. Right. Could you say, oh, and sure. the, the other piece of that is the sense of harmony that there is when everything's in its proper place it's all functioning as it should so to speak yeah well thank let, yeah thank you um yes that's what i was getting at and to take it another step forward uh which may be too far is that what we have but in our various spiritual traditions that a spiritual tradition uh often they create an order, right? So like the Soto order or uh, the Benedictine order, those are, those are people who are following a certain way with certain uh, sets of agreement about uh, how to do things, uh, how they organize themselves. That's what that's what an order is. There's maybe some abstract quality to it, but it also is reflecting, uh, you know, the natural order of uh, of groups of people, of groups of animals, etc. Uh, and so, order has this larger sense. But uh, yes, when everything is in its in its own place. Uh, this is, you have the intersection. There may be a vertical dimension, if you will. This is a whole other talk. But, but the horizontal, it's really important. It, it's, the implication is we're all in this together. That's, that's the order. Gary? Two things that I, I, I got from your talk is the um, Chikantaza, like sitting is, um, not goal oriented, you know. Right. Right. And the second was um, no Buddha, no or no mind, no Buddha, or not not mind, not Buddha, being. Um, now I lost, I lost my train of thought. Not mind, not Buddha. Um, you know, not really clinging to anything meaning not clinging to the mind in some certain state or some some objectification and um, not Buddha meaning um, 
no idea of what a Buddha is. Right. No conceptualization of the Buddha. Oh, give me a third thing. Give you a third thing. Um, okay. Uh, enter the marketplace with gift bestowing hands. Giving. What? Pratana or giving. Yeah. yeah. With no idea of a Buddha. But I want to say, just to say, the idea that we have, you know, of no gaining idea, uh, which we have embedded in our in our particular Zen tradition, this goes back, it goes back all the way to Huineng. Uh, and it's articulated very clearly in the Sixth Ancestor and then in, in his disciples. And um, as I'm thinking about it, I think that was what was radical, but that was not, I don't, I'm not sure I can, I can identify that in the Buddhist tradition previous to that. So uh, this is a through line through Wineng, Matsu, all the, and all of the uh, ancestors. So one more from, I see Stephanie Solar. I was thinking about um, what gets in the way of uh, my living with uncertainty. And I have a fair amount of that going on now, given my recent move to, uh, to Portland. Um, Your house looks so orderly, though. It looks on screen anyway. Maybe that's just the, the screensaver that you have. It's an Airbnb. It's uh -huh. <laughs> not my home. Okay. And I've been um, making it mine for the last two weeks. Anyway, I noticed that um, when I have preferences, that it really gets in the way of me um, having um, being able to embrace uh, uncertainty, which seems to be quite ordinary. How do you work with your preferences? Um, with difficulty. Uh, but I can generally see that their preferences. Uh, and you know, I, I see that their preferences, and then I have to decide. Okay, do I indulge that or not? You know, uh, and you know, do I eat this? Do I watch this television program, etc.? Uh, I have to engage. All the best I can do with my preferences is to engage them with awareness and uh, really ask myself if they are. Who's who's the boss of whom? You know? And uh, I actually have to ask myself that many times a day. And if I don't ask myself that, then Lori will ask me, or, or one of my kids will ask me, or you will ask me. But uh, preferences arise. Preferences are part of Buddha mind that's arising. We have these preferences. The question is, uh, who's running the show? <laughs> and uh, right now, I'm going to close the show. <laughs> so thank you all. Thank you. Beings are numberless.
Dharma gates are boundless. 